You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist. We gotta live on science Welcome to Unbiased Science, where we bring scientific method to the madness. We're your hosts, Dr. Jessica Steyer and Dr. Andrea Love. And this week, we are tackling a topic that is near and dear to our hearts as animal lovers. We are going to answer your commonly asked veterinary health, pet preventative medicine questions. We have an amazing guest, an expert in this subject matter, uh, who's going to help answer these questions. So without any further ado, Andrea, would you like to introduce our guest? Absolutely. So I'm super excited and thrilled that Dr. Matt McGlasson was able to join us to talk all things veterinary health. So Matt McGlasson um, is a DVM, CVPM. He is a passionate leader in animal health. He has over 19 years of experience leading multiple animal hospitals. Most recently, he's the chief medical officer at Noah's Ark Animal Clinics. He is also a certified fear-free practitioner, a certified cat-friendly veterinarian by AAFP, a member of the American Veterinary Medical Association, um, also VHMA and AAFP. He currently serves as the Northern Kentucky representative on the executive board of the Kentucky Veterinary Medical Association. He also serves on the veterinary advisory board for baseballs and the editorial advisory board for DVN3. He's frequently featured in the DVM 360 magazine, um, and he speaks nationally on a variety of topics, um, including things like veterinary practice management, pet insurance, veterinary practice culture, utilizing social media, and finding joy in veterinary medicine. In addition, Dr. McGlasson was awarded the Veterinary Hero Award in 2022, presented by DVM 360 in the category of practice management. Dr. McGlasson also seeks to bring personality and fun to the animal health industry. Love this. Uh, He has redefined methods for content development and education within the industry by operating engaging veterinary-themed social media accounts and amassing over 1.2 million followers with well over 150 million video views. Matt's work and insights have been featured in Newsweek, NBC News, The New York Post, The Sun, The Dodo, Vet Candy, VetX International, and countless other media outlets. He is passionate about growing and supporting the future leaders of veterinary medicine. And you can find him on TikTok and Instagram at Dr. Matt McGlasson. And of course, we'll tag his accounts on our show notes. Dr. McGlasson, thank you so much for joining us. I'm so excited to be here. I'm not going to lie. I'm a little bit nervous. <laughs> <laughs> That's all right. That's all right. If people don't know Dr. McGlasson, and, and Matt, I'm going to call you Matt just for, you know, ease of ease of use here. Um, but um, his Instagram is full of hilarious meme videos of his pets and also a lot of the pets that he um, treats at his practice. And um, I've just been thoroughly entertained by by all of them. So I'm um, really glad that you could could join us. Yes. Thank you so much for having me. I'm super excited. Awesome. All right. So let's Andrea. How many pets do we have between us? Just real quick. So I have seven cats. Matt? I have three cats and three dogs. And I have four dogs and two cats. So that's that's fur babies. 19 (laughs) animals between three people. So I love it. 
Oh, we're, we're doing good. our due diligence. Yeah. Yes, and, and many of our pets are special needs pets. I know we're going to talk about that. Um, and I was not to be totally inappropriate, but right before we hit record, I told Matt that I'm in love with him and I'm saying this, it's actually my wedding anniversary. And I'm, I don't know if you're in, you know, married or in a partnership. I, I'm just, I am completely obsessed <laughs> with you and your mission and everything. So thank you so much for what you're doing. That's very, very sweet. Thank you so much. (laughs) All right, Andrew. So let's kick things off with some pet ownership statistics because that's obviously kind of why we're here. So it's estimated about 70% of U.S. households, um, which is 90.5 million families, own at least one pet. And that was based on a survey from the National Pet Owner Survey conducted by the American Pet Products Association. And that's actually up substantially over the last several decades, up from 56% when the study first started to be conducted, which was in the 1980s. Um, And even since 2019, up from 67% there. So if you look at kind of breaking out by pets, of course, we're going to focus primarily on dogs and cats here today. But of course, there are exotics and other types of pets that people have. But it's estimated that 38% of U.S. households have at least one dog and about 25% of households have at least one cat. And so there's a lot of people out there that have pets. And as you might expect, there's a lot of misinformation or misconceptions about what those pets need when it comes to adequate health care and preventative care. And we know that a lot of some of the misinformation that we see when it comes to human health has really crossed over into the veterinary medicine world. So we're going to tackle a lot of those common topics, particularly how they relate. Sorry, I have a cat on my desk, um, particularly how they relate to veterinary health in the context of preventative health and, and those sorts of things. So there's a lot of topics. There's a lot of questions. Let's kind of dig in um, to some of the basics before we get into the controversial stuff. So Matt, can you walk us through like, what are the absolute essentials for veterinary care that are maybe overlooked or not even realized by most pet owners, things they take for granted? Okay. Yeah, for sure. I I know we're going to hit on some of these later on in the conversation, you know, as far as vaccinations against diseases that can make your pet sick or be fatal to your pet. Um, The spaying and neutering thing, we're going to hit on that later as well. I know the big one for me is is starting out like when you get a new pet, whether you adopt a new kitten or you pick up an adult pet from the shelter, I think the first thing you need to do is get that pet into a veterinarian, establish a relationship with a veterinarian that you trust. I think getting a baseline and figuring out a plan and making sure that you find a vet who is on the same page with you. Um, you know, I always tell my, my pet parents that like they're, they have to come into the appointment being the advocate for their pet, like with your cats, obviously have their own special personalities and everything like that. Like, you know, your cats, I, I'm going to get maybe 10, 15 minutes in a visit. If that, you know, if we're lucky. So really make sure you have a veterinarian and a a veterinary health center that you trust um, and get that relationship started first. Because whether it's a kitten or an adult dog, there's going to be very different um, needs as far as their health goes. So just getting on the same page with your vet right away, I think is the most important thing. Yeah, that, that's super important. And and I guess, you know, to that end, obviously, you know, how often they need a checkup or a well visit or an exam kind of varies based on their medical needs or their age. But like, broadly speaking, you know, there's, there's often people that feel like, 
veterinary practices are, you know, a little bit of a racket and, you know, we don't really need to be bringing our pet in as often as they're saying that we do. So, you know, baseline or, or bare minimum, how often should cats and dogs be, be having well visits or visits with their veterinarians? Yeah. So like general rule of thumb is if you have a new puppy or a new kitten, you're going to want to start seeing your vet at about six weeks of age. And, um, you're definitely going to have more visits uh, at early on with those. It's going to be heavily weighted because just the way the vaccine series works, a lot of the diseases we're trying to vaccinate for require multiple boosters to get effective immunity. And that's when our pets are really at risk for some of these diseases we're going to talk about later, like parvovirus and panleukopenia and feline leukemia and all those types of things. So initially, you're going to start seeing your vet about six weeks, and you're probably going to see them every three or four weeks for about four visits, typically when they're, when they're babies. Um, after that in general for like, you know, if you have a young, healthy pet once a year is typically okay. You know, obviously if you have a pet with some special health concerns, you might be in more frequently, but once a year, I would say at a bare minimum is a good rule of thumb. And then once our pets become seniors, so that's depending on who you talk to, what, what qualifies as a senior pet, typically somewhere in the range of like eight to 10 years of age. A lot of times it's good to get in there every six months. You know, when you think that some of our giant breed dogs, for example, like their life expectancy may only be 10 years. So in that pet's life, six months is a really long time. And a lot of things can change in six months. I have a question. Yes. Uh, <laughs> so my, some of my dogs have really stinky breath and I've come to love their breath. I actually, I joke that I would like wear it as perfume. Uh, <laughs> Sorry. Yes. I'm the weird one. I know. But dental cleaning, I'm hearing so much about this. What is, what do you recommend? Should we be doing it? How often should we be doing it? Does it have to happen under anesthesia? Let's talk about it. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, how often your pet needs dental cleaning is going to vary a lot based on the type of pet you have and just that pet's individual genetics for sure. Um, what we know is the statistics show us that a majority of cats and dogs are going to have some dental disease by the age of three. So definitely when you go in there annually for your vet visit, uh, you know, one of the things your veterinarian should do is look at your pet's mouth and kind of give them a grade on dental disease and see what it looks like. And, you know, some of our larger breed dogs may not need a full professional dental cleaning until they're older, you know, even eight or nine years old plus. But for a lot of our toy breed dogs, um, you know, specifically like little, you know, miniature poodles, Maltese, some of those dogs, chihuahuas, they get really significant dental disease, even at one or two years of age. You know, they have this tiny little mouth and dogs have 42 teeth, you know, squished into that little mouth. So a lot of these guys are going to need dental cleanings early on. And I would say that um, definitely like as far as there are some at home things you should be doing. So definitely I tell my clients this, do I do it every day? I'd be lying if I said I did. It's easier said than done, but you should actually brush your pet's teeth every day, dogs and cats. So that's very important. Um, but as far as once your dogs and cats start developing that plaque and that calculi buildup on their teeth, that, you know, it's just a nidus for bacteria can definitely cause some other health issues down the road. So to really clean the teeth properly, um, and a proper teeth cleaning includes dental radiographs um, that does unfortunately require, you know, full anesthesia and sedation. Oh my gosh, every day. I am I am 36 years old. I have I when I had dogs, I currently don't have dogs at the moment, but I did brush the dog's teeth with that like bacon flavored toothpaste when mostly they're just eating it, right? They're not 
you're not getting a lot of brushing done. Um, I've never brushed a cat's tooth in my life. And I've had cats since I was born. And, you know, I've been very fortunate. I do bring them to the vet, you know, every year, at least, you know, when I had older cats or sick cats, you know, obviously more frequently. Currently of my seven, I have one, he's my second oldest who has a little bit of tartar. And so we did have that conversation. And the vet was like, you know, all things considered, there's a little bit of plaque there. He's probably not right at the point where we want to be concerned, but something where down the road a year or so, maybe he wants, you know, we want to look into that cleaning. And so, you know, that also brings up uh, another question, which is, you know, these, especially these, these procedures that are done under anesthesia, they can be very expensive. So, you know, we, we have veterinary insurance or pet insurance just for the two oldest cats, but what's your general kind of rule of thumb with regard to pet insurance? You know, a lot of people think it's a little bit scammy, but you know, for, for me, I had, um, uh, our oldest walrus who passed away a few years ago, he had abdominal cancer, um, and congestive heart failure. And, and, you know, the, those years he was covered, it covered like thousands and thousands of dollars of veterinary bills. So the statistics make me sad because I talk about pet insurance and the benefits of pet insurance, but I just wrote it down. It's, I, I was hoping it went up, but it's still really, really low. So, um, currently, in the United States, about four to five percent of uh, dogs are insured. Um, only about one percent of cats in the United States are insured. And in some countries in Europe, it's like fifty percent, uh, up to like seventy-five percent in some European countries. You know, they just really are bigger on pet insurance. Um, but I will say this: I've never. I've been practicing for almost twenty years. I've never ever had a client say, oh man, I wish I, I wish I hadn't paid for this pet insurance all the years. Like every single time they're glad they had it. So it's, it's most important if you can get it early on for sure. And it can be a big investment, you know, I mean, with, with pet insurance, they're not going to cover typically pre-existing conditions and things like that. So that's why it's important to get it early on before your pet has major health issues. Um, a lot of times clients come in when there's this, you know, crisis and they're like, Oh, I'm going to get pet insurance really quick. I'm like, no, it doesn't work that way. It's too late now. Every client that I know that has pet insurance is always thankful they did in the end. Now, if you're a person that's just you know, um, extremely wealthy and you don't need to worry about it. Great. But, you know, I think a lot of people just don't have a concept of how much veterinary care can cost. You know, if, if your cat, you know, swallows a string or has a, you know, an intestinal obstruction on a weekend and you end up at like a, one of the 24 hour emergency clinics or specialty centers, I mean, it's at least a thousand dollars just yeah. for the overnight just stay. Right. At least. Right. Yeah. yeah. So. That was my exact situation. Yeah. No, but yeah, that's what I, I mean. I, so as far as pet insurance, yes, I encourage it for everyone. I mean, my whole thing is the human animal bond and whatever I can do to make that bond stronger and make sure that people are able to provide the care for their pets that they want, because there's nothing more heartbreaking than having a pet owner come in and it's a condition that could be fixable and they just don't have the finances to fix it because of what's going on in their life. So those are really heartbreaking. So if we can minimize those situations, I'm all for it. I remember it was um, back when I was in grad school, I was with my, well, now my husband, but we were dating at the time and we had these, uh, we had two cats, we still have them, Marley and Rory, and middle of the night, an ice storm, I think it was February, and we heard crying, we saw blood, turns out that my Marley had bladder stones. And it, the, the visit was over $10,000, he needed emergency surgery. We 
we were poor grad students. We'd like took out 10 different credit cards and everyone was like, oh, you're crazy. You shouldn't have paid that money. I mean, and to your point, I mean, there was nothing that was going to stop us. We were going to do everything we we had to do to save the cat. And he's perfectly fine. Yeah. You know, we, we modified his diet, all that. Um, yeah. And and yes, we got insurance after that. And to your point, it's a pre, you know, it's pre-existing condition. So any issues related to that will not be covered. But we've had other emergencies crop up for other pets. And it's like, thank goodness we have this in place because you never want to be put in a position where it's like you have to choose and, you know, that that a, a massive amount of guilt and, oh my goodness, I can't even fathom it. So another thing, so I just rescued my latest rescue. He's a, a Great Pyrenees German Shepherd mix. And so a larger breed, so beautiful, Maccabee, we're obsessed with him. And so multiple people have said, oh, you have to wait to fix your wait, wait to get him neutered. You have to wait a certain amount of time. So what is the guidance? I guess there's some controversy around neutering and spaying and timing of it. Can you talk well, a little bit? Yeah. There's also controversy about, oh, good, I've got more cats that are just um, chewing on each other. There's also controversy about, you know, whether or not you should be doing it, right? There's a lot of people who believe that, you know, you should just leave them as they are. And, right. and, and maybe, maybe before Matt, you get into it, you know, I want people to understand, and we talked about, you know, the, the financial, um, burden or, or commitment of having a pet. And I think a lot of people who realize that they can't afford a pet or, or, you know, it's more than they were bargaining for, you know, often will just abandon their pet. Right. And so, you know, if you look at the number of homeless pets, homeless animals, it outnumbers homeless people five to one, there's, there's 70 million cats that are estimated to be homeless in the U.S. Only 10% of dogs that are born will ever find a permanent home. And um, as much as rescues and, and in shelters and adoptive agencies do their best, um, simply because of the lack of resources and space, um, it's estimated that about at least 1 million shelter animals are euthanized every single year. And, and that's not even including the numbers who are suffering and dying on the streets. And so, you know, spaying and neutering is is it's got individual pet benefits and I'm going to hand it over to Matt to talk about but it's also got population benefits you know I'm I'm a, a foster 100%. I'm a foster for the Philadelphia city shelter um and and I've um you know foster failed a couple of those guys but they are the city the only city municipal shelter and so they have to euthanize when they run out of space and you know they do a great job doing what they can with the resources that they can but one of the biggest things that people don't understand is that you can't simply just adopt out the the kittens and the puppies. You have to do, you have to spay and neuter even feral or stray animals because you have to kind of end that cycle, right? These, these animals can have multiple, um, you know, litters every single year. So that growth of those homeless populations can be exponential. Yeah, for sure. I mean, definitely like, you know, from a population standpoint, as someone who, you know, through undergrad, I worked at a, a shelter in an area of the country that was not, you know, very well funded. And like, I'll never forget those scenes. Like, you know, I mean, I had to help, you know, and it was like, you know, we don't have space anymore. You know, every week on a certain day, it was the euthanasia day where we had to make room and like, you're going back with a leash and getting a dog that's wagging his tail and, you know, totally healthy, fine, no issues, but there's just no space. So until you've like been through that, I think in euthanized healthy dogs and cats, just because of space, you know, so in general, yeah, there's a huge benefit, you know, I think just to the population in general to get as many dogs and cats fixed as we can. And it used to be 
pretty straightforward. I feel like, like if you had a pet, you were just supposed to get them spayed. And uh, there, there is definitely a, a movement um, now, probably really kind of taken off in the last 10 years or so where, you know, I see people saying they don't want to spay or neuter their pets as much, or they want to wait till they're older. And I'm not a super smart person. So I always like to like make things as simple as possible. So like for cats, like you spay and neuter your cat. Like there's no reason ever to like not spare your new year cat before six months of age, like every cat. I mean, that's my opinion to my clients and my patients. So if you have a cat, they should be spayed or neutered before six months of age. If you have a small or medium sized dog, in my opinion, they should all be spayed or neutered before six months of age too. I mean, I'm sure people all get hate about this and people are going to say you're, you're wrong, you're crazy. But I mean, that's my opinion. The only ones where I say it might be worth having a conversation with your veterinarian and it's individual decision because there's pros and cons, which I'll get into in a second is if you have one of these like giant large breed dogs, um, there have been some studies which seem to suggest there might be more orthopedic issues possibly in some of these like giant breed dogs, if they're spayed or neutered before, um, a year of age. So that's something to consider. Um, but th there is also like really strong evidence that we know over the years that if you spay your dog, um, before their first heat cycle, they only have about a 0.5% chance of getting mammary cancer at any point in their life. If you spay them after that first heat cycle, the risk jumps to 8% of those dogs will develop mammary cancer. And if you wait after two heat cycles, it jumps up to 26%. So, you know, over a quarter of those dogs are going to develop mammary cancer in their life. And mammary cancer, you know, they're not all highly malignant in dogs, but over half of them are, you know, and those can metastasize to the lungs and do all things going to require a big surgery for your dog and all that. So, that mammary cancer risk is always there. There have been a few studies that sometimes would suggest certain types of cancer might be more likely in spayed or neutered dogs. Um, but those, it, it seems like when one comes out, then there's another study that kind of refutes that. So I think a lot of that science is really not super uh, great yet, to be honest with you. In general, spayed and neutered dogs do live longer than dogs that are not. So I hope that was sort of a complicated answer. <laughs> and the same can be true for cats, right? The same risk of mammary cancer, uterine cancer, and all of that is reduced when you when you get a female cat spayed before the first heat cycle. And, and ultimately, that's because you're removing all the reproductive organs, right? You're removing the ovaries and the uterus. And so you're reducing those reproductive hormones that can, in you know, some ways facilitate the progression of these cancers. And so, you know, getting them spayed have health benefits beyond just limiting the likelihood of unwanted kittens and things like that. What about for male cats and male dogs? You know, there's there's certainly, you know, a lot of data with regard to some of these female re reproductive cancers and the benefits of that for female pets. Um, what about um, um, testicular cancer in, in male pets or other sorts of things? Yeah, I mean, we obviously by neutering your, your dog and cat, you're going to eliminate the risk of testicular cancer. Testicular cancer isn't super common in dogs, and it's really, really rare in cats. Cat. So um, I think that's important, but I think another part of just neutering a male pet comes down to, you know, so many pets end up at the shelter for behavioral issues. And we know that the dogs and cats, the males that are left intact um, with that um, testosterone um, circulating through their blood are going to have a higher 
aggression, higher rates of aggression and dominance issues and urinary marking and all these types of things. And a lot of pets end up at the shelter and they become those pets that get euthanized someday just because of the, some of those behavioral issues and not a health issue. So, so I'm blown away by the amount of misinformation that has infiltrated the veterinary medicine world. Um, and we've done other podcast episodes and we'll link to these in the show notes. We've talked a lot about um, some diet trends in the veterinary world, like grain-free diets or raw meat and the dangers of those things. We've covered those. Definitely go back and listen if you haven't already. But now vaccines um, <laughs> are, are, I'm hearing so much about vaccines. Andrea, I know you pulled some stats. There was a recent study done and there's now all kind. I mean, there always has been, but this like renewed vaccine hesitancy now when it comes to our pets. So Andrea, yeah. can you share? Yeah, <laughs> let me let me set the stage um, with some infectious disease statistics, and then I'm going to hand it over to Matt to talk about which ones are are required or, or would be considered core vaccines for dogs and cats. So there was a study published in Vaccine in September of this year that was led by researchers at Brown University School of Public Health, and it was a partnership with YouGov, which is a nonpartisan research organization, and they surveyed 2,200 dog owners across the United States from March. To April 2023. And they asked a variety of questions about intent to vaccinate and their general thoughts about veterinarian recommendations with regard to vaccination. And, and there's a lot of data in there, but the biggest takeaway was that 40% of dog owners believe that canine vaccines are unsafe and more than 20% of dog owners believe that canine vaccines are ineffective, and 30% believe them to be medically unnecessary. Essentially, that veterinarians are trying to make them waste their money on vaccines that they don't actually need. A shocking 37% of dog owners also think that canine vaccinations could lead to their dogs developing autism, where there's no evidence that autism exists in dogs, and there's also no evidence that vaccines lead to autism. We've debunked good old Andy Wakefield many, many times. And the craziest part was that this wasn't just for non-core vaccines. This was applicable to things like rabies vaccination. And we've even heard on, you know, on the podcast page that people feel like, oh, well, you know, you don't really need these vaccines every year. Or, you know, you don't really need the full series for protection. You know, they're just, they're just, you know, veterinarians are just trying to, you know, make you spend more money on these vaccines. And before we get into like which vaccines you should be getting for your pets, I want to talk about rabies because rabies is a virus. It's, it's, it's a disease called, caused by the rabies virus, and it's in the rhabdovirus family, which, which is um, a group of viruses called lysivirus. There are other viruses aside from the rabies virus that infect other mammals like bats. And rabies virus is, is spread through direct contact with bodily fluids, typically through bites or scratches, but it can also be from respiratory droplets if you're like in the vicinity of an infected animal. And so people are typically infected through animal contact. Now, in most of the world, the primary route of humans getting rabies are through dog bites. It's like 99% of human rabies cases in countries in the world where rabies is prevalent among dogs, particularly in stray dog populations. It's 99% of human cases. Now, in the U.S., because 
most states, I want to say all states, hopefully, um, require rabies vaccination for registering your dog. Most commonly, rabies cases in the U.S. are caused by bats or interaction with bats. Now, rabies isn't super common. It causes about 59,000 deaths per year, and almost half of those are in children younger than 15. The vast majority of rabies deaths are in Africa and Asian countries. And the reason it's rare in the U.S. and other developed nations is because of vaccines. And and I think the thing that people need to understand is that rabies is like 99.9% fatal. If you get infected or your pet gets infected and they develop symptoms or you develop symptoms, you're going to die pretty much. I mean, you know, this is this is one of these diseases that it's just mind-boggling to me that we're even having this conversation that like an $80 vaccine that prevents death for your pets and prevents them from potentially getting infected and then infecting you is like up for discussion. Now, nearly all dogs and cats if they're infected with rabies and they and they start showing symptoms, they die typically within 10 days of symptom onset. So, you know, that one just boggles my mind that that's that's a conversation but Matt maybe you can walk us through like the rabies vaccine and some of the other vaccines that that you really need to be getting for your pets want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money well I've got the podcast for you I'm Sean Piles and I host Nerd Wallet's Smart Money Podcast on our show we help listeners like you make the most of your finances I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. For sure, yeah. And the autism thing cracks me up because I did actually have a client tell me that one time. And I was like, well, how do you know if your dog, how do you know if your dog is autistic? <laughs> yeah. What did you say to, in response to that? I'm so curious. I don't know. I mean, like when, like my first year out of vet school, I was super passionate and I would argue the science and all that. And it's kind of like, well, like rabies vaccine is like, it's the law in all 50 states. Like you have to have a rabies vaccine and we like, it's just our policy and it's most clinic policies. Like we're not going to put our staff is at enough risk already just by getting bit and scratched and zoonotic diseases and all that. Like if your pet, if you refuse to update your pet for rabies vaccine, have it on file, like we, we just, we're not going to treat you for like normal things. Like it's just not, it's not worth the risk. So most people I will, will understand that eventually. And plus it's just the law. And I, I say the same thing, like you realize it's a hundred percent fatal, like a hundred percent. Like if you get rabies, you're going to die pretty much unless you like, get those, you know, treatments right away. I think we're going to hit on like why it's even important for indoor pets in a minute. And I have, a, I have a fun story about that too. But yeah, as far as, as far as vaccines go, I mean, do you want me to hit on the ones that are, that I consider core vaccines 
yeah let's yeah. let's maybe do dogs first yeah. and then we'll do cats because because there obviously are different diseases and i love zoonotic diseases i can talk zoonotic diseases all day and every time i go to the vet i get to chat with them about it but i think yeah a lot of people don't realize that you know there are diseases that can make your pet sick but but there are many of those that can be transmitted to humans too and 75 percent of human illnesses are zoonotic diseases, which are ones that can be transmitted among different species. So we already talked to, talked about rabies. I mean, rabies is, is like 100% required for cats and dogs. And each state is a little bit different in how, how the vaccine has to be administered. Um, but like where I live in Kentucky, and it's the same in Ohio and our practices there, like they have to get rabies initially and then they have to booster it one year later and then after that it's every three years so it's not even every year so it's pretty easy um, as far as other dogs so what we consider core vaccines um, the big two are going to be distemper virus and parvovirus so um, distemper is a uh, it's spread by respiratory secretions and it causes neurologic symptoms in dogs and is almost 100 percent fatal so if your puppy contracts distemper virus, they're most likely going to die. A few will live, but most of the time they die. So vaccines are very effective at preventing that disease. So it's, it's a no brainer, I think as well. Um, same with parvovirus. Um, we still see tons and tons of parvovirus. That is a virus that causes acute vomiting diarrhea. Um, and it causes like a pain leukopenia. So it wipes out the white blood cells and very high uh, mortality rate with that disease as well. And anyone who's worked in the veterinary profession has seen puppies with parvo and you see how they suffer. And it's like the worst death ever. Like you don't want your dog to get parvo. Very, very contagious. And that virus can live in the environment and on surfaces in the soil for months and months. So very dangerous. So those we consider core vaccines for our dogs. So as far as our cats go, we talked about rabies. That's always a core vaccine. And then we have um, feline leukemia virus. So that's going to be a core vaccine as well, especially for younger cats. And after they've had their, after they've had that vaccine um, as the kitten series, and after one or two years of age, you can talk with your vet and see if that's something that has to be given annually or every two to three years, depending on your cat's risk. Obviously, cats that are outside around other cats are going to have higher risk. But that feline leukemia virus is a core vaccine, and then the RCP people call it. So that stands for rhinotracheitis, which is a herpes virus that causes upper respiratory signs and. It, causes upper respiratory signs, but also a lot of other bad things in cats, very contagious. Um, the uh, C stands for Khaleesi virus. Um, that's another virus um, that causes upper respiratory signs as well as really nasty oral ulceration in cats. And then the P stands for panleukopenia. So that's basically like the parvovirus of cats, very similar symptoms. And, and that one is same as parvo in dogs, very high mortality rate. It's awful to see kittens get panleukopenia. They just stop eating and they have vomiting and diarrhea until they die basically. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and this one in particular, so, so they often call feline panleukopenia virus, um, feline distemper. It's, 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 it's in a part, it's a parvovirus as well. So it's not the same as the canine distemper, but it's also extremely contagious, just like the, the canine parvovirus. And it's, transmitted by the same sort of things, um, urine, feces, mucus, bodily fluids, and um, it's also transplacentally tra transmitted. And those symptoms, um, particularly amongst really young cats, you know, the dehydration, the lethargy, the loss of appetite, the diarrhea, the nausea, you know, that can lead to just multi-system organ failure and, and you know, uh, 
death rates are very, very high. And and I think the biggest thing that people don't realize is that the, these viruses, um, these parvoviruses can survive on fomites. So these are non-animal, non-living objects, surfaces for, for up to a year. And so this is very common in colonies, in shelters, in different types of animal facilities. And so it can, you know, even if a cat that isn't actively infected is in there, it can lead to outbreaks after the fact. And so, you know, several of my fosters actually were in a quarantine room because there was a panleukopenia outbreak and they all had to be in there for the duration of the quarantine period to see if any of the other cats got sick and then everything had to be sanitized when they were at the shelter. But, you know, this one is is very frustrating to me because, you know, the vaccine is very effective and it prevents this infection. And these parvoviruses, they reproduce best in cells that are actively replicating. And so in fetal kittens, so kittens that are in utero, it typically attacks um, the, the region of the brain called the cerebellum, right? And so that's when the kitten's brain is actively developing. And um, typically it's fatal, right? It's like 95% mortality rate in fetal kittens and, and kittens younger than eight weeks old. But if a cat, a fetal cat, um, if the mother, the queen gets infected and it infects the kittens across the placenta, um, if those kittens survive, they typically have a lot of um, uh, neurological impacts. And typically it's associated with a condition called cerebellar hypoplasia, which basically means that that cerebellum, that region of the brain that controls motor function, didn't develop properly because the virus attacked those neurons. And, and I actually have a, a foster fail. She's a, she's an adult cat now, but she has CH and she's thankfully really, really mild, but you know, she walks around like she's drunk. She falls off the bed. She falls down the stairs. She, you know, trips over things. She kind of like shakes and quivers all the time. And, you know, she was actually found as a stray, as an adult with, with a kitten of her own. Um, and she managed to survive on the street in Philly and keep this baby alive. And, you know, now I have them both, but clearly, Clearly, she was likely born to a mother on the street as well, presumably, who was not vaccinated and got infected during her pregnancy. And, and you know, now she has brain damage. And so, you know, we can, we can obviously prevent deaths of these cats and we can also prevent all of these, you know, complications, um, you know, of, of things like these viral infections that can lead to neurological issues. And so, you know, it just really underscores like these vaccines are, are pretty affordable and they, you know, just, they save animals lives and they prevent all this needless suffering. Yeah. Yeah. So affordable. I mean, you're, you're talking about like, you know, I mean, for a lot of our it's like 30 bucks or yeah, something, like the baby's vaccine, I practice, I think is like $28 and you know, so yeah. it's, it's, I, yeah. I don't understand the vaccine hesitancy part that's hard for me to comprehend. So it's hard for me to argue with people <laughs> don't want to vaccinate their pet because I see what happens when a puppy gets parvo. I see what happens when a kitten gets panleukopenia, you know, it's awful. And, um, you know, and, and that, that's all I can do is, is try and just, you know, educate them on, you know, like if, if your pet gets exposed to these things, it's going to be really, really bad. And I can tell you really care about this pet. So my advice is I think you should consider this, you know, the, the risks of vaccines are so minimal compared to what your pet is going to go through if they contract this disease it's just like it doesn't make any sense to me so that's that's all i can do is just try and educate pet owners i think yeah now one of the things that you know so my cats are all indoor only i feel very strongly about cats being indoor only um for for both their health we know that letting them outside reduces their life expectancy it puts them at risk for all sorts of things ingesting poisons and getting hit by cars and infections and wounds and all sorts of stuff but but a lot of times we hear oh, well my cat never goes outside so why do i need to get them vaccinated 
maybe you can address that. Yeah, for sure. Um, I, I would say one thing is even if your cat is a hundred percent inside cat, a lot of times doors get left open and cats are really good at just sneaking out and they might be gone for the night and who knows what's going to happen while they're out there. Now mine with mine that are missing legs, not so much, but my one with four <laughs> legs run pretty fast, but just one, one funny story. And a lot of, a lot of, I mean, that's very common with people. They, they adopt a cat, they love the cat, but you know, it's an indoor cat. It never goes anywhere. And they kind of just forget about the preventative care because, you know, cats just do their thing and you don't really know anything's going on. So, um, a couple of years ago, um, we had uh, a client show up at our practice and they were kind of panicking and they brought in their cat and they also brought in this little box uh, with them. And they had like their three young kids with them, like all under the age of 10. And what happened was the parents came down in the morning, they had slept in, it was a weekend and they came down and the kids are all huddled around the cat in the living room and a bat had gotten into the house and bats get into houses all the time. So the cat had caught this bat and killed it. And the kids were all down there. Like, you know, they thought touching the bat, they're not sure they're little kids, but you know, they were all thought it was really cool. Um, so they, they bring the, the cat hadn't been, hadn't been vaccinated, um, in like eight years or something. So they're freaking out, you know, what's going on. So, you know, as, as veterinarians, part of the thing we do is, is public health, you know, so when we have a situation like that, we send the bat in for testing. Um, and, you know, testing consists of sending off the brain tissue. That's another thing, like pet owners, I try and do understand, like, if you think your pet could be exposed to rabies, like we can't test them for it. Like we're going to quarantine yeah. for 10 days and hope they don't show clinical signs because the only way to test for rabies is to send off the brain. Cut their brain. Yeah. 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 So we sent this bat off, you know, just routine and it came back positive. It had rabies. So now the cat's been exposed to this bat. All three of the kids have been exposed to this bat and the parents have been exposed to this bat. So it's like, you know, what, what if that bat had like, what if the cat didn't kill the bat, but he just like got his saliva on him and the kids petted the, you know, got away. Like the only reason they knew is because we tested the bat. And I had a similar situation with someone who trapped a raccoon in their yard too. And the raccoon bit them and they, instead of releasing the raccoon like they were going to do after the raccoon bit them, they decided to bring it in and test it. It was positive for rabies. So rabies is still out there a lot. And, you know, like, you know, that thankfully we tested that bat. So the parents had time to go to the physician and do the exposure, you know, treatment and all that, but it's not fun, you know, for the kids or the family. So. Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, a bat got into our house a few years ago through this little crevice um, in the window. And, you know, it's like half in, half out. It was um, probably had like the white nose fungus because it was out in the middle of winter and it probably was going to die anyway. And, you know, I mean, it didn't thankfully interact with anybody, but I'm like, what if it like snot some shot some like mucus and like, I'm in the vicinity and like, so like I had like a real, you know, debate about whether I should go get the series just to be safe. And I was actually going to volunteer for a, a bat rescue here in Pennsylvania. And, you know, part of that would have been requirement to get the series, but it's like, you know, you, you often take it for granted or you assume that you're going to be kind of living in this bubble where there aren't wild animals or potential exposures. And so, you know, getting this, you know, vaccine that's, very affordable and can reduce your risk and your pet's risk just seems 
you know, common sense. So in terms of other preventatives, so I actually just yesterday gave all four of my dogs their heart guard and neck guard. So flea and tick preventives, um, heart, heartworm preventives. Can we talk about those? Do you recommend those to all the animals that come into your practice? Yes, for sure. So like, as far as like the external parasites, you know, flea and tick prevention, you know, definitely very, very important for dogs and cats and even indoor cats. We see indoor cats every single day at our practices come in with fleas, you know, um, it just takes one flea coming in on your shoes or your pants or coming in through a you know, screen or a window. And once that flea's on your cat, this happened. yeah, it's going to lay hundreds this- of thousands of eggs and it's going to, it's going to be a party. So flea and tick prevention and, and not just because it's gross, but because fleas can carry some, some diseases that can make your pets really, really sick. You know, if you have a puppy or a yeah. kitten, they can get really anemic from fleas. We see kittens die from flea anemia. Um, they get feline infectious anemia that's passed by fleas. They get tapeworms from fleas. So all these types of things. And then ticks, we've already hit on Lyme disease, but you know, we also see from ticks, uh, just where I live, we see Rocky Mountain spotted fever, we see ehrlichia, we see anaplasmosis, all diseases that can make your dog very, very sick. So that's, you know, a no brainer. Um, definitely want to do that. And obviously ticks are worse in some parts of the country, but they're pretty much everywhere anymore. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then for your dogs, especially, you know, cats can get heartworms, but it's much more rare. So uh, with dogs, um, you know, the risk of heartworm and that's passed by mosquitoes. It's a vector borne disease. So they should be on heartworm prevention year round. One of my rescues, Riggins, you know, Riggins, he is a little cleft palate. We had to do the repair. He came to us. He was a mess. Um, you know, double yeast infections. He's deaf. He's he everything that you could imagine. But he had heartworm. He tested positive. And the treatment for that is is intense. I mean, you could speak to it, but it, it was it was very scary. Like we had to keep him contained. I guess there's some risk if, if they get to with the treatment, if they are too active, I don't know. Do, am I making sense? Am I making this up, Matt? Is yeah, this accurate? I mean, you, this is not something that you want your dog to contract and it's lethal. It, it, yeah. Right. It's very easy to prevent. <laughs> and yeah, it's, I mean, if, if any listeners, like you hear people talk about heartworms, but if people don't realize it's actually a giant worm in your dog's heart. Like, exactly. Yes. Yeah. So, um, you know, it's passed yeah. by mosquitoes. They grow into, you know, six inch long worms that are living in the pulmonary arteries and the heart of your dog. So very easy to prevent with just a monthly medication. You know, that way, if your dog is bit by a mosquito and they get the little, you know, microscopic um, larvae, it's going to kill those larvae so they don't develop and you get heartworm disease. But yeah, treating treating dogs for heartworms is very expensive and it has some risks for sure. You know, you're basically using uh, like a, an arsenic type medication to kill those adult worms. So as they die, they're obviously breaking apart and you have the risk of thromboembolism and all those types of things. So we do have to try and like restrict their activity, which is easier said than done with us. Yeah, super easy to do with pets, right? They listen. And, and I think one thing I'm going to chime in on just, you know, for my, for my tick prevention plug. Um, so, so I think a lot of people don't realize that, you know, whether it's an oral or, or a topical ectoparasitic medication that in order to kill the, um, the fleas or the ticks, you know, it's, it's something where they have to bite, they have to feed on, on you. And once they do that, then they're killed. And so a lot of times you want to take a first step. And if your dog, you know, you went out in the woods and you went a hike, 
give them a good combing so you can get any of the crawling ticks or fleas, um, you know, because that's going to reduce the number that are maybe going to bite or, you know, fall off or get on, a, you know, the carpet or whatever the case happens to be, which can inadvertently crawl onto you and bite you. And, you know, and, and then we also have tick-borne illnesses that can infect humans too. So that's that's kind of the the extra layer um, that, that I like to recommend. And, and with, with the flea preventatives, you know, there are, there are newer generation ones, um, because there are fleas that have evolved resistance. And this is exactly what happened to, to my household where a flea got in pr presumably on like a hiking backpack and, um, all, all the cats were on preventatives and there were fleas. And I'm like, what was happening? Like they're all on medication. Um, and turns out in our geographic area, the fleas that are predominant have evolved resistance to frontline, which was the one that I kind of used for years. So I had to bomb the house and I threw out all the cat trees and I got rid of several carpets and, you know, they have the, the Capstar pills, which can kill all, all fleas, you know, of any life cycle immediately, and then switched them over to Brevecto, which has been super effective and haven't had any issues. But I was so salty because I've been so diligent about it all and it still wasn't even enough. And we have this, you know, mild infestation. And once you get an infestation of fleas, like they're just everywhere. Yeah. Um, it is not fun. Yeah, so. it's, it's pretty awful to go through. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Very quickly before we kind of get into like maybe some of your pet peeves or, or things like that. I, I think we heard that that, you know, people not getting their pets vaccinated is a little bit of a pet peeve. But um, we have talked about fad diets and things like that. There's all these boot boutique places out. There's all the social media advertising for these, like these raw foods, these refrigerated foods. What do you generally recommend for your, for your pet owners with, with regard to like their pets diets? Um, so I, I, like, I generally recommend a, a name brand diet that you've heard of. That's going to have like the AFCO seal on it. Um, and I tell people like, you wouldn't believe as a vet anytime I'll just post like some background video in my story or something of one of my because like some of my pets have special issues eating their kibble their prescription diet and you would not believe the hate i get i can't believe you're feeding your dog that that's you're feeding that dry yeah. dry garbage it's all fillers they should you know so and then you know i hear you know for whatever reason um there are people that uh, are so passionate about grain-free diets and there are people that are so passionate about you should only feed your dogs raw like I mean, they just want to fight you anytime you post anything, you know, indicating that maybe that's not a great idea. Um, so I, you know, and I hear the argument like that's what wolves eat. And, you know, I'm like, have you seen my five pound dog with purple ears? Like she's not a wolf. I mean, vicious predator right there. Yeah. Also, like wolves have a lot of parasites. Exactly. <laughs> and like, how long do wolves live in the wild? Like four years. Um, right. So, yeah. I mean, as far as the raw, I mean, the, so the, I mean just for a safety standpoint, like I'm always like, if you're going to feed something, you should know that feeding your dog raw food does come with some risks. You know, um, the FDA did a study and 8% of the raw diets they checked were positive for salmonella. Um, 16% of them were positive for listeria. So that's not only a danger to your dog, but like, I don't know about you guys, but like when my dogs eat, they're not like using silverware and super neat about it. Like it's all over their face, it's in their whiskers. And then what are they going to do? They're going to lick They're just it. rubbing it all yeah. over the house. Yep. So there's a risk for them and there's a risk for you. So if like feeding them this diet is, is introducing extra health risks into your pet's life, I don't think it's worth it. Um, and then the thing with the, you know, I, I think you guys have already hit on the, um, 
you know, the grain-free thing. I, I don't know how that started. I'd love to figure out exactly where that came from. And I, whoever decided that grain-free was the way to go, like they were marketing geniuses because everyone in the country is, you walk in any pet store and they're hitting you with grain-free. And there have been some studies recently that throw some of this into question, but there are really some concerns from people in the industry that having your pets on one of these grain-free diets or one of the boutique diets can predispose some dogs to developing dilated cardiomyopathy. And, you know, if they're eating just that as well as, you know, a balanced diet as well, the risk probably isn't there. But if they're eating just that and nothing else, it does seem to be that there's some risk there. So again, it's like me, maybe the jury's out a little bit on some of this and what the risk is. But like if, if doing so introduces extra risk of my dog getting dilated cardiomyopathy, which by the way is going to be fatal usually and not fun to treat and keep them alive as long as you can. But like, why would I do that? So my recommendation is feed, feed a, a, a brand name diet that is going to have the AFCO seal that's been tested. And, and that, that's my, that's my yeah. And, and, and Matt, you know, you bring up a great point. I mean, it's the same sort of like vilification we get when we talk about human food ingredients. It's like the reason those are big names and big brands is because they have the infrastructure to do quality control, to make sure that, you know, foods are created with the same formulation. They're not contaminated. They have the same standards. They have the nutrition. You don't want to go to a boutique, you know, food or, or medication store because they aren't going to have those measures in place. It's just, you know, it's this, it's kind of this backwards thinking. Yeah. And it, it tastes great. The dogs love it, but like, you know, maybe, maybe that's not the best thing for hundred percent of their diet. Yeah. Right. So I often joke, like there's literally nothing I wouldn't do to extend the quality and quantity of my lives. Like if I could clone my dogs and my cats, you know, like there's nothing I wouldn't do. So I know we're wrapping up. Do you have any advice or things you wish pet owners knew any pet peeves that people should avoid that are in the best interest of our pets? Yes, for sure. Sorry. The sun is like following me everywhere I move. Uh, my office is in the cat room and it's kind of crazy. So yes, uh, it's funny. Oh, my office is the cat room too. Yeah. yeah. It was supposed to be my office. It became the cat room. Now they finally let me bring a desk in here. So we all coexist, but they love the sun. Um, so number one thing I would say, don't let your pets get overweight. So, um, studies have shown that obese pets on average live two years less than pets that are at healthy weight. And it's, you know, super cute to see a chonky cat and, you know, you get the little pugs and their bellies Pooch. are dragging their oh, yeah. Right. So, yeah. right. But um, it's really, it's really dangerous for them, you know, and we're talking about the ones that are, that are obese, um, you know, higher risk of diabetes, higher risk of, of all kinds of orthopedic issues. So keep your pet at a healthy weight and they will live longer. It's a fact. Okay. So don't spoil them with that many treats is what you're saying. <laughs> <laughs> Every now and then, but not too many. I have, um, most of my cats are, are relatively slender, you know, but, um, one of mine was called, um, perfect body condition by the vet. And, um, mm -hmm. I was very proud of him, but, but, um, but my CH cat, she, um, well, she was a nursing mother just about a year ago and, um, she's not super mobile and she kind of, is very enthusiastic about food and she kind of eats like she's still producing milk. And so she's gotten a little thick. And so we're going to try to figure out how to 
balance that. Granted, it's only been a year since she's been off the street, so I'm giving her a little bit of a break, but she's she's getting thick. The last thing before we wrap up, um, and and I think this really relates to a lot of what we've kind of in, you know alluded to is that misinformation is rampant about pet care, pet pet diets, pet healthcare. What what do you tell people who are kind of overwhelmed or inundated with misinformation on social media, especially when it comes from people who are involved in veterinary care, right? There are some vets who spread misinformation. It's same thing we see with with certain medical professionals and human uh, medicine. How do you how do you help people navigate this? I wish I had an answer for you. It's really hard. Like you said, I, I I used to say like you know just listen, look at the source. You know, if it's a someone who has no medical training and they're just you know say they're a dog trainer, I'm sure they know a lot about dog training that I don't know. But like, should they be giving you medical advice on diets and vaccination, all those types of things? Um, I think in general, most veterinarians that I see on social media are giving pretty good information. There are a few that are going to be out in left field and, and promoting things that I think are dangerous to pets. But I think just just look at look at who's talking um, and don't just focus on one vet and take what they say as gospel. You know, look around, talk to your friends. And I mean, don't get don't get all your information from social media in general. I think that's dangerous. You know, I think my daughters get they get all of their like the world news off of TikTok, which is a little scary. But, um, you know, I think that going back to the very first thing I said, having that relationship with your veterinarian, a veterinarian that you trust and, you know, you really feel comfortable with and will allow you to be the advocate for your pet and bring those concerns to him. And you can ask those questions and not feel judged. I think that's really, really valuable because when I'm talking to my clients, if they ask me, like, should I feed my pet a raw food diet? Like, I'm not going to attack them and make fun of them. I'm going to say, well, here's the things you probably want to think about. I don't feed my dogs raw and this is why. And, you know, here's the the risks and the benefits and all those types of things. So I think just having that relationship with a vet is huge. Yeah, I think I, I love all of that. Yes, don't get all of your information on social media. There's, there's, a, there's a scientific consensus within veterinary medicine as well. Don't listen to a single entity. You know, look at these, these veterinary medical um, associations and the recommendations that, that these expert organizations make. So yeah. Dr. Matt McGlasson, thank you so much for joining us. It was really a pleasure. Um, <laughs> um, and, and we hope that our listeners learned a thing or two and hopefully have some tips to navigate the world of veterinary preventative health and misinformation. Um, please remember to give him a follow if you're not already following him at Dr. Matt McGlasson. And if you want to support our and help us grow the impact and reach of Unbiased Science. Um, remember that we have a donation page on our website and a coffee account. We also have some fun, snarky merch like our Anecdote is Not Evidence and our Urasaka Chemicals t-shirt. Um, so make sure to check that out at our website at www.unbiasedscipod. Of course, make sure to subscribe to our YouTube because we put videos of our podcasts up there and all of our social accounts. Our handle is at UnbiasedSciPod. Catch you next time on the pod. Your trust source for no nonsense, just science.